0: This is a CBC Podcast. Yes.
1: Okay, so here we, here we have Loki uh, sitting down right in the engine block. It looks like he's giving me an indication right at the fuse panel. Good boy! Good boy! So we're definitely going to check that out for narcotics. Good
2: boy! Loki may be a good boy, but as a drug-sniffing dog, he's on the lookout for bad behaviour. We'll introduce you to him and his human partner today as we zero in on the border in our special coverage of the toxic drug crisis. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, we're kicking off the show with a look at housing. From the federal government's push to discourage some Airbnbs, to all the hoops you have to jump through to build affordable housing... And we'll ask the Mayor of Toronto whether this week's fall economic statement will make any difference in city's ability to build. And later in the show, we'll talk debt. The government is spending more on debt servicing than on the military or employment insurance. Should we be losing sleep over Canada's national debt? But let's get started with our first guest and his complaint about ridiculous red tape. The House is now in session.
3: I am today announcing new measures through our economic plan to build thousands upon thousands upon thousands of new homes across the country. That was a key
2: pledge from Finance Minister Christia Freeland's fall economic statement. On Tuesday, she announced $16 billion to help build apartments and affordable housing. In a few minutes, we'll ask Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow whether she thinks it will do the job. But first, we wanted to find out how challenging it can be to build affordable housing. Bruce Davis is president of Public Progress. He's a consultant who works on affordable housing projects. Welcome to the house.
4: Catherine, how are you?
2: Good. Thank you so much for making time, Bruce. Uh, To start with, how hard is it to get affordable housing built in Toronto right now?
4: It is. It's ridiculous. Even if you look at the city's own dashboard of its own projects... Every month it brings forward a list of its own projects, about 25 projects that it's leading, that it's spearheading. Their own projects are stuck in the mud. So one department can't get something approved by another department. That's city-led, completely funded projects. So for another agency uh, to try and get something built or for a private sector developer to get something built with some affordable housing in it, It is, it's monumental. So this is what I spend all of my time, effort, energy, and resources doing, helping municipalities and agencies to try and stick handle all of this. It is brutal.
2: Has it gotten worse?
4: Well, on the good side, there's money available. And I think part of the challenge is operationalizing that money, operationalizing the announcements. You know, you see a fiscal economic statement, there's an announcement. You now have to operationalize that. But at least there's money. There are programs. You just have to figure out how to, you're trying to thread the needle riding on the back of a horse. It's, it's like you're trying to be precise about something that's moving all the time. It's very, very difficult. So I would say on the money side, there's money, especially for rapid housing. It's been fantastic. But the rules of engagement have become so much more difficult, um, what I call the you know, the land use mechanics, the planners, the land use mechanics have made it so difficult to build anything that it's got that part of it's gotten worse.
2: Now, you told a story at a, a city committee meeting a little while ago about the challenges you face. I saw a clip of you telling this story online and it really struck me. Can you just walk us through an example of how hard it can be to get something built?
4: Sure, and I think that one went viral because so many people relate to this and they find it so challenging to get things built. That was a case, an Indigenous housing provider in Toronto in the East End, Um, we were just trying to get 20 units of deeply affordable housing built for men who were getting off the street. And the city rules, there are so many ridiculous arcane rules that we had to go to the Committee of Adjustment. There were 14 of these little variances, and I'll give you some examples, but the very fact that you have to go to C of A means now you have to consult with all of the neighbors and they all get input in terms of what you're doing, your bike storage and your outdoor furniture. And uh, it, it becomes ludicrous. You can't get things done. So just one example, the bike storage requirement, that I think is the one that went viral. You know, you're required to have indoor bike storage, 1.1 parking bike parking spaces for every person in the building. Okay. And it has to be indoors. And these are guys who can't even afford food. And now we've created a bike parking standard. And 20% of those bike parking spaces have to be for electric bikes. These are guys who who don't have bikes. And now because of the the bike storage room has to be inside. And you now also have to have a, a bike maintenance room. So inside the building, you have to have a separate room just created to maintain the bicycles, which you don't own because you can't afford them. So that takes away another apartment where you could have had an apartment. Now you have to have a bike maintenance room beside the bike storage room. And we're all shaking our heads saying this is ridiculous. And then we had to, because of the space requirements, we had to have a mechanical bike lift so you could hoist the bikes. Like this is the part that I guess struck a nerve because it's asinine. And when you talk to city officials about this, they just say, well, those are the rules because we want more people to ride a bike. Like, okay, but we also want people to live.
2: Let me ask you, Bruce, if I could wave a magic wand and, and change something to make it easier to get homes built in Toronto, what is the most important thing that needs to change?
4: Attitude, attitude, attitude. It's not even a regulation. Uh, we need federal, provincial, and municipal to align. And we need a positive attitude that says we are going to get this done and we can get this done. It's, it's an attitude that says that rule was meant for a certain purpose, but you know what? Based on what you're trying to do, we think we can adjust the rule and let's get it done. We need someone, when you call them, they'll say, what does it take to help you get that housing built? That's it. It's not even money. You know, the money, frankly, is straightforward. It's really straightforward and the way the feds and CMHC are working, it's very, you can tell in a week whether a project is viable. You know, you do the math, you work with the agencies, you work with the municipalities. the CMHC staffers are amazing. You can tell in a week. And if that dog won't hunt, then you put it on the side and then you find another project. We can get housing built. I would say the first top thing is, is attitude.
2: Bruce Davis, really appreciate your insights today. Thank you for this. Happy to help. Bruce Davis is an affordable housing development consultant. Well, someone who says she is very determined to get housing built is Olivia Chow, the Mayor of Toronto. She joins us to talk about what her city is doing and whether this week's fall fiscal update will make a difference. Welcome to the House, Mayor
5: Chow. Good morning.
2: I'd like to start with what we just heard from Bruce Davis about red tape holding up affordable housing construction. Do you agree that that is a
5: major problem? It is a major problem. Uh, If you could watch me right now I'm pulling my hair out um, (laughs) because it is just frustrating and I heard what Bruce Davis was talking about and immediately I've now put one person in charge rather than three different departments um, and we have a deputy city manager Jack Sharma in charge and uh, he's recruiting a new planner a new expediter new director and then he's also having that have a list of all the affordable housing projects in one place because they used to be scattered all over the place so we could track them properly also it's a concierge approach what does that mean it means that one person one accountability walking through the entire system from pre-application consultation to actual building occupancy this kind of approach is long overdue and And that's what we are doing. The the last thing is, if you don't make things transparent, then it can't be accountable. We want the public to know where is the application process? so that there's hope, so that people would know, wait a second, why is this taking so long? What's going on? So that they could apply pressure. So those are all the things we are doing because we can't wait. People need housing right now, especially those that are on the waiting list for affordable housing. And there's 89,000 households in the state of Toronto. So let's dive in there. Because I, I heard a very similar message from you
2: when I heard your reaction to the fall economic statement this week, and for folks who weren't following it, of course, the government identified sixteen billion dollars to fund more apartments, more affordable housing. You said it didn't it doesn't meet the moment
5: why? Well, some of that money is loan guarantee, which we really appreciate. And and others are grant, So it's about a billion dollar of grant uh, for 7,000 units of housing, but across the country. So that's about 700 units in the city. And on top of it, it won't start until 2025.
2: It is money that goes into existing funds, we should say. Like this is just more money
5: in the future to continue with these kinds of projects. Exactly, exactly. Now, there is a fund that the federal government have that is really effective. It's called a Rapid Housing Initiative. And they've done three rounds of it. And we just need the fourth round. We want it to have the fourth round ready now because it's the best program they have. And very little red tape. Shape, it's immediate. It provides supportive housing. And, uh, and and there's a long list of community agencies, churches, synagogues, mosques that have applied. And they're really good application. They're ready to build, ready to provide housing for all the people living in shelters right now. Give them hope. And um, we've seen it. My, just turning people's lives around. And so we need the fourth version of it, and that's the billion dollar uh, announcement. We just hope that it starts in twenty twenty four next year. Yes, there's other programs, and the city have applied for uh, the accelerator funds. I, I want to dive in about the accelerator funds because I heard mm-hmm. you I
2: heard you wondering aloud uh, this week. Essentially, where is our money? The city of Toronto Mm -hmm. has asked for uh, half a billion dollars. So we thought, well, let's find out. Let's ask the housing minister, Sean Fraser, what is going on with that housing accelerator money. He told us he had just sent a letter to you in the city of Toronto asking the city to do more. Have a listen.
1: I think there's certain areas where we can promote further reforms in exchange for federal funding to cut
6: red tape, to speed up permitting, to increase zoning density around transit and services. That's the flavour of the letter that I sent to the mayor very recently. And should Toronto acquiesce to some of the requests, uh, the federal government will certainly be there to support uh, some very real ambition on housing in the city.
2: Now we have the letter, Mayor Chow. There's eight more things he's asking the city of Toronto to do. Are you and city council willing to do what he's asking to get that money? 100%
5: ready. In fact, we've been negotiating. And a lot of what he's asking for, the housing minister is asking for the right thing, and we see eye to eye, and we say, yes, of course, we need to accelerate our process. We need to say yes a lot faster and cut red tape, all of those things, which is what I just started the conversation with Mm -hmm. you, the description of all those things. I knew this was coming. I had faith in the federal government that this will be happening. And, yes, we are ready. Ready. And not just you, but city council, because that
2: was one of his points. It's, he said, she and I see eye to eye, yes, but will city it's council to be on the same page? <laughs> yeah,
5: of course. <laughs> (laughs) I have confidence that uh, the entire city council will rejoice on December 13th. This letter will be on our agenda. In fact, it'll probably be on the agenda on my executive committee next week. And we will say yes, and we will respond to say these are the things what we're doing, and we're going to do a lot more. And thank you for such good news. Um, I do want it's a, to... It's a, maybe it's a holiday present. Is he playing Santa right now? I don't know. <laughs> he was not wearing that hat this when is I spoke early... to him. Yeah, No, there was no, not red hat and no pom-poms behind it. Okay, so it's a early Christmas present or a Hanukkah present. Well, listen, you're, we're present. talking
2: about uh, presents. We're talking about the carrot side of things. I want to ask you about the stick side of the equation because another federal politician who has been talking a lot about trying to get housing built is, of course, conservative leader Pierre Polyev. He says federal money should be withheld from cities if they don't meet housing targets. He suggests that increasing the number of houses uh, built 15% year over year would be a good target. He says if you do meet the targets, there is more money that's forthcoming. I'm sure that cities would not like that approach, but would it
5: force cities to build faster? I can't speak on behalf of other municipalities, but the City of Toronto uh, is absolutely meeting the target. In fact, we just came out with a report with targets that we said is even more ambitious than that. We are saying we are building 60, just ourselves, right? Uh, 65,000 units of uh, rent controlled rental buildings on top of all the others that the private sector are building. So massive building boom. We're ready. Shuffle ready. Uh, as to conditions on this stick approach, I'll leave it for other municipalities to speak for themselves.
2: But it sounds like you're saying no problem, Pierre Polyev. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sweating that at all.
5: No problem for us. I'm not sweating with targets because our is even more ambitious. Now, Uh, Some municipalities may not have the financial means to do the kind of uh, building. And the other thing that's missing is the infrastructure funds. If you just build a lot of housing without community center, green space, libraries, schools, all the things that are required, Uh, actually, Mm sewage, water, roads. (laughs) Those are hard infrastructure and soft infrastructure.
2: So you're saying that has to be part of the the picture. I I am going to jump in here, Mayor Chow, because there's one more important
5: issue, and I know it's important to you that I want to... But I just wanted to say, Mm -hmm. though, that there is no infrastructure funds that have been announced. So municipalities, through the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, are saying that we need infrastructure funds. If not, a lot of municipalities can't build housing because there's no money for roads or sewage and clean water. That's important. Uh, I, I do want to ask
2: you about this conversation that's been going on with you and the federal government about shelter spaces for refugee claimants. You and the Immigration Minister have been going back and forth publicly about potential locations for these shelters. Global News reported that the federal government was ready to offer the city two locations and funding for a
5: third, and the city declined. Why is this so hard? We did not decline, and it, it was never the, the application. The, the offer wasn't formally. But listen, we're talking about 5,000. So there was 000. an offer? Wait, hang on, hang on. 5,000 yeah. refugees. The offer is talking about a couple of hundred, Okay. A hundred here, a hundred there. We need five thousand spaces for refugees that is being housed in some needing of housing right now. We talking about we have already spent two hundred millions of dollars. Two hundred millions. Yes, we. If if the the minister wants to provide five million, great, of course, but. The space that he has said that we should, it's the City of Toronto space, it's already part of our plan. We have engaged two housing providers to support us. It's it—it's not a shelter bed, it's a respite centre. So
2: I still don't understand why there is such an inability to get on the same page
5: about this, Mayor. We are on the same page. There are three things we need. We need Shelter housing for 5,000 people, not 200. The dollars that was promised hasn't been delivered. Okay, We need 200 million plus. Okay, And number two, a reception center. And it's great that finally a reception center has just been announced. And that would be near the Pearson Airport. Great. Okay. But the third part is now, what do we do? Housing benefits. The province and the city have both put something on the table. We're housing people right now. We need the federal government to come on side. And third, the fourth one is that uh, locations, whether it's better living center or armories, but it needs to be four things, not just one.
2: We're Unfortunately, Mayor Chow, we are, we are right out of time right now, uh, but we will be following this issue. And we appreciate your perspective on it. Thank you. Thank you. Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow. There's also another way the federal government is hoping to help with the supply of rental housing.
3: We'll be cracking down on short-term rentals listed on sites like Airbnb and Verbo, which are keeping far too many homes off the market in communities and cities right across the country. That's going to make a real difference yeah, to community.
2: The crackdown comes in the form of new tax measures. Owners who live in areas that prohibit short-term rentals or aren't following local rules won't be able to claim expenses for their rentals on their taxes. The government also plans to spend millions to support cities in enforcing restrictions on Airbnbs. But will it actually help in freeing up more housing? One place to look is British Columbia province and its largest city have recently made more moves to tighten rules around short-term rentals. Lenny Joe is a city councillor in Vancouver.
0: Actively, we have about 5,000 listings right now in the city of Vancouver. And I'm only talking about the city of Vancouver, not even metro Vancouver. 40% of them, they are actually illegal short-term rental, which means we have a 2,000 illegal short-term rental unit in the market at a given time. In Vancouver, the most significant issue is principal residence. So there are a lot of people they are using their investment property to do the short-term rental. That is not right. And also, some of the operators they don't apply the license, so they provide the fake, the invalid license numbers to run the uh, short-term rental business. That's not acceptable.
2: BC's new legislation will help back up municipal governments when it comes to those licenses and other local bylaws. And it would set a pretty strict limit on where short-term rentals can be set up. It would have to be in that principal residence. These provincial rules aren't even law yet in B.C., but it seems like they're already having an impact. A lot of
7: people are listing. A lot of people are looking, thinking, I'm not going to wait. You know, the rules are here to stay
2: and there's going to be way more competition come
7: spring. So, so sell these now. Tamara
2: Stone is a realtor in Kelowna, and she told our colleagues at CBC Radio's Daybreak South she is seeing panic amongst property owners.
7: It's a lot of out-of-town investors. That's who we're getting a lot of phone calls from. So people who live in Calgary or Toronto or Vancouver who have bought with the with the plan or desire to perhaps live there full time in five to ten years, and and now you know the buildings are completed or nearing completion, and in order to justify you know, 3,000, 4,000 a month mortgage payments, they are looking at, at being able to Airbnb it. Maybe come and use it for a week at Christmas, maybe use it for a couple of weeks in the summer, and then the rest of the time rent it out short term. So that that's really who we're seeing is going to be impacted. Of course, they could put it in the long-term market.
4: Then you can't come for Christmas.
7: You can't come for Christmas, <laughs> and your rent will not be anywhere close to what yeah. you get doing it short term.
2: Lenny Joe points out that tightening rules doesn't have to mean doing away with Airbnbs altogether.
0: I want to be very clear. We need to support the legal short-term rental operators. You know, we're in a housing crisis and uh, owning a home is really expensive, especially in Vancouver. We need to support the homeowner who already own the home to, you know, maybe use their room for short-term rental to make some money as a mortgage helper. Also, we are in a big shortage of hotel space in the city of Vancouver. So we encourage people to do the short-term rental, but they have to follow the rules
2: Airbnb's Nathan Rotman pushes back on the idea that cracking down on short-term rentals can help solve the bigger issues at hand.
0: In Toronto and Vancouver, two cities that are heavily regulated and have significant enforcement mechanisms, where we have removed thousands of units from the short-term rental marketplace, we haven't seen any reduction in rental prices. We haven't seen any increase in availability in those two markets. So we don't think that there is a a meaningful or a material impact that short-term rentals have, on the housing market. The short-term rental uh, enforcement is not a silver bullet, for sure. The bottom line is the uh, supply and demand issue. Imagine if we have enough supply to the market and we wouldn't be even sitting up here today talking about this short-term rental issue.
2: Still, Vancouver Councillor Lenny Zhou feels those steps to crack down on certain short-term rentals are worth taking.
0: It will solve all the housing prices for sure, but it will contribute to improve our affordability.
2: In a minute, we'll talk about part of the economic update that's got one former Liberal advisor losing sleep at night. And also, later in the show, something I have never asked a guest before. Can I pet your
1: partner? Unfortunately, you cannot pet him. I'm the only one that can reward him because we don't want him to lose lose any focus in the field, right? We'll introduce you to one of the teams that looks for drugs
2: at the Canada-US border. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to The House, the podcast that helps you make sense of the political decisions that affect your life. A new episode drops every Saturday. One of the big pressure points in the housing market has been rising interest rates, but they're also hurting the federal government's bottom line. Yep, I'm talking about the ballooning national debt. If finances don't get you fired up, consider this. This fiscal year, the government will spend about one and a half times what it spends on the armed forces, just on debt service charges. They ring in at a projected $46.5 billion. It's a big number, and it's only going to get bigger in years to come. But is it cause for alarm, or just the price of running a government? In studio to discuss, Kevin Page is president and CEO of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. He's also a former parliamentary budget officer. And Robert Asselin is the senior vice president of policy at the Business Council of Canada. He was also an advisor to former finance minister Bill Morneau. Welcome to the house to you both.
8: Thanks for having us. Good to be with you.
2: Uh, Now, Robert, you are concerned about the debt. Are you like like losing sleep at night over this?
8: Uh, A little bit of it. Yeah, really? I am, because I think about my kids' future. And what I see on the horizon are significant risks. One is debt servicing costs, higher interest rates, as you described. This is real, and this is going to stay. Second is low economic growth going forward, because we're an aging society that is not too productive compared to others. And then I look at spending pressures. The NDP wants pharmacare. We want more money for defense. We want more money for energy transition. Right now, I look at the fiscal framework. There's no room for all of this. So one has to give. This is what I'm worried about.
2: Okay. Kevin, you've just heard Robert make the case uh, for losing sleep over this. What do you think?
9: Well, Robert's a smart man. Maybe I should be losing sleep, but I'm not, actually. Okay. Not, not, on, not on public debt interest charges. Not right now. I, mean, I think it's, it's inevitable that those numbers had to go up. We took on a lot of debt during COVID, I think perhaps for good reasons. You know, we definitely live in a much higher inflation environment right now, so interest rates are higher. So it's inevitable that public debt interest charges, no matter how you measure it in current dollar terms or as a percent of revenues or spending or GDP, it's going to rise. It really couldn't get any lower than going into the COVID period.
2: So if we look at something um, that helps make this a little bit concrete, if we say one and a half times what we're spending on the military or much more than we spend on employment insurance, billions and billions of dollars more, as a layperson, I think, like, well, we could certainly be using that money for other things. It, it sounds like a problem to me.
9: But it's an inevitable consequence of just a massive increase in debt that took place during COVID, really to backstop the economy. We actually paid more in Canada than in the mid-1990s. Public debt <coughs> interest charges were, you know, about $50 billion. So right now you talked about $45 billion. And again, those numbers will rise So relative to debt. So... I mean, it's a big number. It's something like you know, Robert warned us many times that we need to be monitoring it. But it's again not something to lose sleep over at these current levels. Uh,
2: you, you stunned Robert. He knocked over his water glass there, <laughs> not Kevin. Not the first time. Uh, <laughs> uh, listen, I, I'd like to bring the government's perspective in yeah. here, Robert, because uh, my colleague David Cochrane did ask Finance Minister Christia Freeland about. The extent to which she was concerned about the debt, how she was balancing it with her other decisions in the foyer of the House of Commons right after she had presented the fall economic update. Let's listen to a bit of what she had to say.
3: We do understand the importance of fiscal responsibility, and that's why we actually have the lowest debt and deficit in the G7, why we have a AAA credit rating. And what this fall economic statement shows is we have an economic plan which is fiscally responsible. It does mean, David, that our resources aren't infinite, that we can't do every single thing that every person would like but what it also shows is we understand that you cannot cut 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 at a time when Canadians need investments in housing, investments in the economic capacity of the country.
2: So that's her case, Robert. I mean, she's talked about balance, she's talked about restraint. What do you think of that argument?
8: Well, I will say that she missed her fiscal target twice now. Debt to GDP is going up. This year will go up, next year so that's one thing. The, the second thing is this net debt comparison. There's a few things I want to say. First is like saying Canada is better than Switzerland in hockey. You know, it depends. not compa- too impressive. Yeah. yeah. So we compare ourselves to U.S. and Japan on debt. I think it's pretty easy to surpass these expectations. Secondly is the net debt anchor, if you want to say that, takes into account our pension assets, and we have large pension funds in Canada. So that kind of troubled the water a bit on other countries don't have that. So I think I don't think it's a good comparison. If we would go on gross debt, for example, we would be one of the worst country in the OECD going forward. So we have to be careful how we actually compare ourselves to.
3: So
2: I, I do wonder about this because, of course, you used to be an advisor to this government, and, and the Business Council has been pretty... They've, they've put right out there their stance about this, that it's an issue that needs to be addressed. It seems to me Christia Freeland is trying to say in that clip, we're listening, but you're saying not so much?
8: Well, we want to see the implementation of the listening. <laughs> uh, and I'll say what is important in there. I think it's important to kind of take it back to Canadians, what it means for them. The dollars we spend on debt servicing, we don't spend on their priorities, on health care, on education, on the transfers the government is making to provinces, on defense, on international aid. And this is what constrains the government. The more we spend on debt servicing, the less we have to fund other priorities.
2: Kevin, I'm curious what you think about the comparison that Robert was making with, uh, say, the United States.
9: the comparisons, actually, Canada still, I mean, we and I've, you speak to bond rating agencies. I've spoke to some recently. We'll speak to some more before Christmas. I mean, they still see Canada in, in, in an ideal position. If you're a finance minister, a treasurer in another country, you would love to have Canada's numbers, whether they're gross liabilities or net debt liabilities. Our numbers are good. You know, The deficit that we have now, the budgetary balance for this year. Of about forty billion dollars is a new commitment now. And I think you know the government is holding to that number in a, in a context of a slowing economy, partly because people like Robert have put pressure through the Business Council on the, on the government. So I think I think the, the government is responding. So no, I, I don't think like the debt numbers or even the budgetary balance numbers are are really you know wrong for this in stage of where we are in the economy. Remember, a few years ago we were sitting on a deficit of almost three hundred and thirty billion dollars, and so it's fundamentally a different environment.
2: I'd like to look forward now. I believe Robert mentioned Pharmacare earlier. We know that that's something that the NDP put in the Supply and Confidence Agreement with the government. It is something that the NDP is trying to make a reality. Not clear if we're just sort of getting a framework this year and maybe the money flows next year. Can the government afford a program like that, that I believe the PBO has pegged at something like $11 billion?
9: Yeah, they they we can't deficit finance uh, Pharmacare program. We would have to raise the revenues. And so... We would have to hear from the government, you know, which you know, taxes are they going to increase? Are they going to increase the GST? Are they going to increase income taxes? You know, $10, dollars million, you're talking about a, probably a percent and a half on GST to pay for it. Not a good environment. You know, as Robert has alluded to, the economy is slowing Yeah, I'm pretty trying significantly. to imagine
2: what the public response would be in the midst of this affordability crisis. I mean, it seems to me that that's politically unimaginable to say, oh, we're going to hike the GST right now.
9: Politically, I think it would be bad public policy in this environment as well.
2: Yeah. So so then where does that – does that make pharmacare unaffordable or where does that leave the government? It doesn't
9: happen in the next two years. If you look at this economic outlook, um, very slow economy this year, even slower next year. And again, this is an economy where population is increasing pretty significantly. So it's, these growth numbers that we've alluded to are very, very weak. Yeah, you know, could it happen somewhere two, three years down the road? Would we be in a better position? <clears throat> excuse me to raise taxes, probably, but not now,
2: Roberta. In closing, I'd like to get you to weigh in on what I was talking about with Kevin there, which is the idea of new programs. I mean, PharmaCare in particular is such an important one because it has all these political consequences. Uh, yes, it can have a very real impact on people's lives could also mean the fall of the government. What, what do you think about the government's ability to uh, say yes to the NDP?
8: The job of a finance minister, in my view, and I've, I was very lucky to be close to two, uh, Mr. Martin and uh, Mr. Morneau, is to be prudent, is to forecast for the unforeseen. And when I look at this fiscal framework, I, I see no fiscal room for the unforeseen, We were lucky to have the position that we had going into the pandemic. But if there was another pandemic, I'm not sure we would be able to have the fiscal power to deal with it. And that's what prudence means to me. You know, the fiscal anchor is not a mean in itself. It's to preserve the good things we want to keep and spending on uh, for Canadians, essentially.
2: So if you were advising this finance minister and... uh I'll just call a spade a spade and say it sounds like you're a little out of step with her. Um, But you would say we cannot do pharmacare?
8: I don't think we can in this current environment. I agree with Kevin on this one, unless they raise taxes, which would be a really bad outcome. The other thing we don't want is what happened in the 90s, which are huge cuts in social programs. And again, I saw Mr. Martin doing it. It's not fun. We don't want to get there. I'm not saying we're close to it, but the trend we're going towards is a bad one, in my opinion.
2: Okay. Well, folks are going to have to decide whether or not they can sleep at night after this panel. But uh, I certainly enjoyed getting the chance to talk to both of you. Thank you so much.
8: Thank you. Thank
9: you.
2: Robert Asselin is with the Business Council of Canada and Kevin Page is with the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy. The latest numbers show that on average, 21 people in Canada are dying of opioid overdoses every day. But how are toxic drugs and the ingredients to make them getting into Canada? To get some insight into what happens at the border when it comes to drug detection, we have got a special guest.
1: Okay. We have uh, detector dogs trained in narcotics and firearms. We started that in 1978 in Canada. Mark
2: Patterson is a dog handler with the Canada Border Services Agency, and this is his partner.
1: Yeah, so this is Loki. He's a uh, four-year-old lab. We've had a lot of success at the college with uh, labs and beagles, as well as Springer Spaniels. Uh, it, is a, it is a tough uh, program for the canines, only 1 in 10 actually end up uh, being successful at the program. <laughs> Can I pet your partner? Unfortunately, you cannot pet him. He is a service dog, so uh, I'm the only one that can reward him because we don't want him to lose, uh, to lose any focus in the field, right? Loki is a black ball of energy just waiting to be asked to search. The pair work
2: together to find drugs and firearms being smuggled into Canada.
1: Uh, he's going to work for probably 8 to 10 years. Typically, we start their training around uh, 11 to uh, 16 months Uh, of age and uh, he he lives with me and then when it's time for him to uh, retire I get the option to uh, find a house for him or keep him and uh, I've gotten a little bit attached so I think I'm going to uh, to hold on to this guy when he retires.
2: This week we met Loki and Patterson at the Lansdowne border crossing in eastern Ontario. We got a glimpse inside the garage where they do secondary screening and a rare demonstration of Loki's detective skills.
1: So let's take a quick look at this vehicle and see what we find. Search! So you can see him detailing this vehicle. We move around on the exterior.
2: Not your usual kind of car detailing. Loki is sniffing around the edges of the vehicle, and then... So the dog's actually jumping up into the engine of the car right now. Yes, and
1: uh, you can see a clear change of behavior there and an indication that he sat down right on that fuse panel. Good job, bud. What did you get? Good boy. Good boy. So we're definitely going to have to check that fuse panel, all right? When we open the fuse
2: box, Patterson pulls out a bag of white powder. It's a training aid for this demonstration. And we're not done yet. Patterson also shows us a real vehicle they seized at the Lansdowne border. And Loki shows us exactly where they found the fentanyl. Search.
1: Okay, so it looks like he's gone straight to the back of the vehicle. He's sniffing around in a circle. Sniffing at some seams in the rear trunk area. Okay, he's working his way around, and there we have an indication from him at the back. So I'm going to reward him with his Kong.
7: Good boy!
1: Good job! Okay, is there something back there? Is there something back there? Check that out.
7: Good boy! He's a good
1: boy! Alright, so that gives us another area for us to, to look into.
2: In the trunk of that black mid-sized SUV, where the spare tire usually goes, is a hydraulically powered secret compartment, meaning you can't open it unless you complete a specific sequence in the car. Patterson sits in the driver's seat and shows us how it works.
1: All right, so I'll turn on the vehicle and now I will activate the sequence required to uh, open up our hidden compartment.
2: So this is pretty wild, right? The whole back trunk where you would normally put, if this were my car, I'd be putting my groceries has just lifted right up uh, and there's obviously a big storage space in there.
1: That's correct. There is a a large void there. Um, You could probably fit a spare tire and a a couple extra things and that is where we found the the fentanyl.
2: Like the panel lifted, as you said, through hydraulics. That's, I mean... That sort of made my eyes bug out of my head. Do you see this kind of thing often?
1: This is a trend that we are that we are monitoring right now, and uh, we are sharing it with our partners in law enforcement. And uh, yeah, it's a very sophisticated trap that. Uh, that we're trying to uh, stay on top of.
2: It must be pretty incredible for the folks at Border Services when you actually are able to unlock something like that and find out what's on the other side.
1: Yes, it is. It is quite satisfying to get to the bottom and and find a vehicle such as this that has been used in the trafficking of narcotics.
2: Loki also seems satisfied with his finds. He happily chomps on his reward, a bright orange plastic toy called a Kong.
1: This is what he loves. This is what he works for. This is his Kong. This is his paycheck. He loves to work for his Kong. He'll fetch it all day. Our uh, detector dogs are, uh, are also uh, trained to work in uh, various environments and not to be uh, afraid, right? So uh, we work uh, 365 days a year uh, looking in planes, trains, automobiles, postal services, marine modes, anything you can think of. We do that here in Canada. The boy. Hey, what a
2: boy, Of course, dogs are just one way the CBSA detects illicit substances coming across the border. As part of our ongoing series looking deeper into the toxic drug crisis, this week we're taking a closer look at the borders. Aaron McCrory is the Vice President of Intelligence and Enforcement at the CBSA. Thank you for joining me.
6: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
2: Now, we just heard about... This vehicle with a secret compartment operated by hydraulics. how sophisticated are the efforts to get illicit substances into Canada?
6: What I'd have to say is, you know the range of methodologies and tactics of concealment. Uh, there's a, a wider range of them, depending on the mode of transport, rail versus marine versus air versus land, and very sophistication. And the challenge for us is they're constantly changing. And so the example uh, that you heard about earlier, uh, with the hydraulics in the back, that that was quite innovative. But now we, we're we aware of it and we start looking for things like that. But we're constantly on the lookout for new and different ways of concealment, sharing that information with our frontline staff uh, and, and folks like our dog team so that they can successfully interdict uh, drug shipments coming into the country.
2: Can you give me another example of a um, surprising or innovative way that drugs are being brought into this country?
6: We see shipments being concealed in in machine parts, in being dissolved in liquids, and and being shipped as as maple syrup, for example, being hidden in uh, baking uh, tools. Maple um,
2: syrup? Did you say? Yeah. How does that work?
6: Uh, you you dissolve it in the liquid, and you you put it in the maple syrup, or you label it as maple syrup, and hopefully uh, it gets through border controls. Wow. Um, yeah. So we're constantly on the lookout. It's an ever-evolving game where we're constantly looking at new and different tactics to smuggle drugs into the country or out of the country, uh, sharing that information with partners, sharing that information with our frontline staff so we can uh, take steps to stop uh, these drugs hitting the streets of Canada.
2: Now, as I was saying earlier, we've been really looking closely at the toxic drug crisis. We know fentanyl is so very much at the centre of that. So what are you seeing this year in terms of the amount of fentanyl that you've seized at the border?
6: So what we're seeing with fentanyl and and the most recent stats, full stats are for 2022, but the trend is continuing into 2023 is is increasingly uh, we're seeing a decrease in the amount of fentanyl coming into the country. uh, But we're seeing increases in the amount of precursors coming into the country. That is the material that's used to create fentanyl. And so sadly, Canada is becoming an exporter of fentanyl, sending fentanyl, for example, to the US, Australia, and Europe. And that speaks to that one of the challenges that we have is this is an international crisis, and we need to very work very closely not only with our domestic partners to address it, but also with our international partners, uh, sharing information with them, giving them targets so that they can uh, have the same success that we're having uh, in terms of stopping things at the border.
2: Would you say it's successful, given the state of the crisis in Canada?
6: We can always do better, but I firmly believe that every gram, every dose of fentanyl that we stop coming into the country Every kilogram of precursor that we stop coming into the country, every dose that we stop leaving the country, is a life save. And so, the, so measuring it in that, that sense, that every life we save is a, a success. Can we do better? Absolutely. And we're, we continually are striving to do better.
2: Just to give people a sense of uh, when we talk about quantities, a two milligram dose of fentanyl is considered lethal. The numbers that I have seen suggest that you've seized four hundred and ninety-six grams of fentanyl in the first half of this year, that would be enough to kill almost a quarter of a million people.
6: Yeah. The point is, is, success in battling a drug like fentanyl relies on, I like to think of layers of defense. And in this case, there's a whole range of defenses that we need to, to exercise. Prevention harm reduction, and enforcement. And and that's where CBSA comes in, as we're part of the enforcement piece of it. But success is going to come when all those different pieces come together and address the crisis that we're seeing when it comes to fentanyl. And it means for us as an enforcement agency, working very closely with partners like the RCMP, uh, like uh, Police of Jurisdiction, but also internationally with partners in Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, the United States, that's where success is going to come from.
2: You talk about the fact that these these drugs are being made in Canada, that chemicals are coming into Canada. Are they harder to detect? Is that more of a challenge for you than the fentanyl itself?
6: Uh, well, I think the, you, you alluded to kind of the challenge with fentanyl is is small doses, therefore easier to conceal, easier to hide, harder to detect precursors are coming in in larger quantities the challenge that we have there is sometimes the precursors are have legitimate purposes so so there is no interdiction or no barrier to them coming in or the ever-changing chemical composition of the precursors are such that it's hard for, for regulations to keep up so it's it's a constant battle to on our part to identify new precursors coming into the country and then working with our partners like in health canada for example to get those precursors listed so we can stop them coming in
2: Where are they coming from, primarily?
6: Primarily, they're coming from uh, China.
2: And uh, we heard last week from the RCMP that there are efforts being made to have more of an open conversation with China. Does the CBSA have anything to say about what impact better communication with China could have?
6: I think, you know, as I've, I've suggested earlier, this is really, it is a global problem both in terms of the supply uh, and and the demand. And and so working with partners all around the world and and support the RCMP in their efforts in that regard to address the imports that are coming from China that are facilitating the the manufacturing drugs here in Canada.
2: We talked about the fact that these drugs are uh, being exported in some cases, so perhaps made in Canada and then sold, as you said, in the United States, as we heard from the RCMP last week in Australia and New Zealand. What more can be done to stop that?
6: We're taking efforts, and as a, it, it a big part of that is just is working with partners. So, working with the RCMP here domestically, working with police of jurisdiction, but increasingly working with our international partners, sharing information. So, we have targeting officers, for example, that primarily look at at inbound shipments, but we're increasingly looking at outbound shipments to see if we can identify uh, fentanyl being exported to other countries. We also have targeting officers deployed overseas in Australia, in the United States, uh, that facilitate that work as well. And then sharing of intelligence and information with partners. Uh, And we've had some successes, not fentanyl, but uh, earlier this year in January, I think about 140 kilograms of methamphetamine uh, was interdicted by New Zealand authorities based on information they received from us.
2: You, I imagine, at the CBSA have an incredible number of things to keep track of in terms of border security, Um, you know. Uh, everything from firearms, uh, people crossing the border. Where does this rank in terms of your priorities?
6: You've identified our top three priorities. Number one on the list is drugs, illegal drugs, fentanyl in particular. We are seized as an agency with the need to to address and play our part in, in addressing the plague that, that fentanyl represents. And then firearms and, and irregular migration would follow in terms of our priorities.
2: You call it a plague do you have the tools that you need to fight this plague to the best of your abilities?
6: Again, we have the tools to play our part. You've heard about the dog detector teams. They're a great tool. Uh, we have uh, 8,700 frontline staff who are either gathering intelligence, doing targeting, or actually doing uh, examinations. And they've got tools like the dog teams, like x-rays, other detection technology to interdict. But it, is, it, it does require a whole of government, a whole of society approach. Uh, It's not just about interdicting the drugs, but it's also about harm reduction. It's also about preventing people starting to use these drugs in the first place.
2: That is a message that we also heard from the RCMP last week about how everybody has to be on board. In closing, though, when we think about this idea that an average of 21 people a day are dying from the toxic drug crisis, to your mind, is there one particular action that could make a meaningful difference in this crisis right now?
6: I think I've got colleagues all across town, uh, all across the country, all around the world who are tackling this. And as I said earlier, every interdiction, even if it's one dose, we're saving one life. We just got to keep doing that, keep making a difference and, and turn the tide.
2: Thank you very much for your time today.
6: It was my pleasure.
2: Aaron McCrory is the Vice President of Intelligence and Enforcement at the CBSA. That is it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening.
6: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.